Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to episode 81 of the Calling a Man's Answers show. We got a good one today. Online, he goes by Arnum Sortgong. I think I said that right, but he's a 19-year-old linguist who on TikTok educates the public on ancient languages and and different specific things regarding language. We have a really, really, really fascinating conversation about ancient languages. And then at the end, we just are talking as buds. You know, we're just having a conversation about each other, about experiences we've had. He's a really awesome dude. He's hilarious. Take a listen. <laughs> well, just to start, man, uh, just introduce yourself, who you are, what you do for the listeners and everything like that. So I'm... Um Online, I go by Arnott Sorokong. I'm a linguist on TikTok, and I talk about, uh, more specifically, uh, ancient languages. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring you on, man. I saw you talking about uh, ancient English. So just to start, how about you, you give me and the listeners a little brief history of English, where it started, where it came from? Because when you were talking, I think the, the, the video I'm specifically talking about was when you were talking about how long can you go back until you can't understand what the English is? And it, it didn't take that long for you to get back there for me to be like, I have no idea what he's saying. I have to read what it means. So go ahead and give a brief, brief history of English, where it came from, things like that. So English is uh, related to a wide variety of languages that are spoken in Europe, um, the Middle East, and South Asia. So languages like uh, Welsh, Spanish, Ru- Russian, um, Persian, Hindi, uh, those type of languages. And they all originated around Eastern Asia, uh, sorry, no, uh, West Asia, around Ukraine, uh, some 6,000 years ago. And due to a lot of migrations that uh, traveled them, that had them travel around to Western Europe and obviously down into India. Uh, they had since evolved into the languages that we see today. And along with that came English, which um, sort of became its own language as it evolved from uh, various Germanic dialects spoken around uh, Southern Denmark, Northern Germany, around the beginning of the first millennium. And from there, we, get, we start to see the first uh, written English called Old English, that's the language of the Anglo-Saxons and of uh, Beowulf and King Alfred and all that. Um, and then 1066 happened where the Norman French uh, invaded England and um, as such it displaced Old English as the uh, language of the royalty. Um, some centuries passed after that and it evolved into Middle English and that's the language of Chaucer. Um, then some centuries after that we get our uh, early modern English, and that's where we get things like King James and Shakespeare, and obviously the languages that we speak today. And these are, you know, very much so separate languages. You know, they're not like, you know, like ye olde, you know, thou beest, and stuff like that. These are just like these real meat and potatoes type different languages, and you're going to have to go and like get a dictionary to try and figure it out. So, mm. yeah. So, yeah, because. I mean, if you, you, I think everybody has to read Shakespeare in high school or middle school. And while it's difficult, you can still understand it. So where does the distinction, like you said, meat and potatoes, where does that distinction make? Where it, does it become an old language or a different language? And where can you consider it the exact same or not just the exact same, but pretty similar? So I get these questions all the time. Um, I always get these sort of questions, you know, like, how far will I be able to go back? And, you know, like, oh, is this language different from this language or is it just a dialect? Um, And the problem with that approach, with these type of questions, is that linguistics is not a hard science. It's not 
physics. You know, you can't really measure this sort of stuff objectively. It's it's largely you know a results of things like um, of social constructs and you know like cultural distinctions between that. You know, what makes a language different from another one is not based on like a checklist that linguists have lying you know in the corner of their room or something like that. It's largely just cultural stuff. You know, uh, language like um, language like hindi and urdu for instance in india very similar to each other but they're considered different and yet at the same time you have um all of these like very vastly different varieties of arabic that are spoken in north africa and the middle east they're considered dialects you know it's still considered that same language despite the fact that they're very very different so it all has to do with you know culture it's not like a hard science really yeah and so you know, you bring up Arabic, which is which is fascinating because it's the tr- first or traditional language of the Bible. When you switch from one language to another, it becomes. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't have said something that I was I thought was true. To yeah, me. I was about to say. Okay, so um, so Arabic wouldn't be like the written language of any holy text until the Quran, and that's around the, the seventh to eighth centuries. So um, the I think I think Hebrew, Hebrew, right? It's, it's the original language was Hebrew for the Old Testament, with some uh, scarce passages in another closely related language called Semitic, uh, not called Semitic, called Aramaic, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. Mm. But yeah, no. Um, continue with your Arabic. Yeah, well, well, I was just well. Now it's Hebrew and Greek, but it seems as though when you're translating from like large texts like that from one language to another, you lose a lot of specific words and specific um, sentences that make sense in one language to another. So, how much when a large text like that is translated, how much do you lose from one language to another? Is it vast, or is is there basically there's enough words within specific modern holy languages, like not holy as in. Um, as in religious, but holy as in like specific and whole, is there enough similar, similar um, words to translate to, or do you lose vast, a vast amount of what the meaning behind things are in those large, large texts? So um, obviously you're going to um, miss some nuance um, because when you translate something, you um, are acting as a middleman between the reader and the original text. And that's always going to happen no matter what you do. Um, But it's largely dependent on the quality of the translation and what they're aiming for. You know, you can make a perfectly presentable translation of the Bible that has, you know, that explains everything perfectly. Um, But, you know, again, it all entirely depends. Um, You could have that sort of like, I don't know, you could have like a a sort of bias coming in and and, and trying to uh, uh, affect some passages here and there. Um, but translation isn't, again, an objective science. You, there's no way to uh, measure it with hard numbers and such. Uh, it, it's largely, a, like I said before, a cultural thing. Yeah, and, you know, fascinating that you bring up objective science because I took a philosophy of science course this last uh, semester, um, and a lar- large discussion that we talked about was how it's really hard to say anything's objective because of that, you know, bias that comes into hand. Like everything is traditionally theory-laden. And you would think that when it comes to languages and um, and specific cultures, because like the way you're talking about, like societal societal inferences, you would think that when translating things, there would be some type of theory-ladenness 
um, respected to that culture. Cause if one culture acts in a different way and you don't really perceive that as, as normal or good, you would translate it to mean something else for your society. Right. I would, I would assume. Yeah. And, and we can definitely see some of that. Um, I guess that, how, how would you present it? that, the, that presentability, uh, that presentability in, you know, the Bible itself. Um, you know, some books of the Bible are, written in such a way that they are more accessible to uh, foreign audiences. Um, for instance, I believe it's the Gospel of Mark that's more acceptable to things like, you know, like Greco-Roman uh, populations. It has a lot of parallels between Greek and Roman mythology um, and its descriptions of like Jesus Christ and, and, and such like that. I don't know if you know anything about this, but I heard that I think I was watching, I don't know, Jordan Peterson or someone, and they said that a lot of the um, Christian Christian stories or Christian stories within Christianity, they stem from um, ancient stories from ancient uh, Egypt. Do you know anything about mm-hmm. that and, and the Greek or the, the um, ancient Egyptian um, stories and how that played a role in, I think it was the Eye of Horus and Christianity? Yeah, uh, so and I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Uh, that's complete garbage. Complete nonsense. Um, so any sort of mention, so you'll see these images all the time about how, you know, Horus was, you know, like the son of a virgin on like the 25th of December and they'll have to draw parallels to Jesus. When in reality, there's no Egyptian text that actually says that. It's just a bunch of nonsense, really. Um, you know, I, I, I've read these Egyptian myths for myself. Nothing seems to indicate that Horus was the son of a virgin or that he was born anywhere near the purported time of Jesus or anything of the sort. Yeah. And so, you know, being a linguist yourself, uh, does, because it seems to me, well, first off, how many languages would you say you speak fluently? Just English. Just English. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I study languages a lot, but I, I, the problem with ancient languages is that you can't be fluent. Mm. truly fluent in the sense that you know um you could be fluent in say like german for instance because you're always going to be um viewing that language through literature and not as a spoken language and so you're going to be missing a lot of that um that nuance that um spoken language has you know it's going to be like a bit of a shock if we were to go back in time and try to speak Latin to some Romans, because there's things like uh, various dialects and, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking mannerisms that were just never written down. And so, you know, it's going to be quite a shock if we try to speak Latin to them. Um, Yeah. It would be as almost as if like in like the future, um, say a couple couple of centuries or even a couple millennia, if, if you know another society comes and tries to, or they're reading modern English, modern American English, and they were thrown back into like the Southern accents and then, or they went to the West coast or they went to the, the North coast or, or anything like that. It would be because the way that you speak something is so dependent on where you live, that it would be so different from just reading the text because you would interpret it through your own lens. Like that's what basically you're saying. And there's also just the fact that um, we view is that English as is written on the page is very different from English as is spoken. You know, uh, it's um, our our sort of written language is is much more formal. It's a lot more organized. Um, 
we use a typically a, a wider vocabulary, you know, more complex words and stuff like that, that people wouldn't realistically use in, you know, casual conversation. Um, so there's also just that sort of difference in style, I should say. Yeah, definitely. Cause like we, when you read like Shakespeare or that's not really a good example. Even if you read like traditional scholarly literature today's time, like any, anybody that has a PhD and let's talk about like multiple reizability through, through biology. If you read like a paper about that, like you're not going to sit there and read it. And then you, if you're going to convey the ideas to someone like a friend or a, or a colleague, you wouldn't speak the languages specifically that they said within the text. You'd make it more nuanced. Like you said, you'd make it more common, like the way the common man would convey something. I do understand. Yeah. That. I mean, if, if, you know, it, it would be like, you know, if, Exactly. If, if someone started to speak as though it was a scientific paper, we would just look at him and then kind of look, look, look at each other and say, who's this fucking asshole? Yeah, I was gonna say, well, who's this fucking douchebag, dude? Yeah. Um, so it, it, there's just some aspects and style that were just never written down for ancient languages. Um, and so it, it, we're only able to view these languages through how they were used in literature for the most part. How did you get into language and studying languages and specifically ancient languages? So I did it to flex on the hose. <laughs> I'm not true? kidding. I, I, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I, I did it because I thought that it would be uh, like a good conversation starter uh, in, you know, in parties mm -hmm. of which I get invited to a lot. And um, <laughs> so um, I started studying Latin around two years ago um that was the first language that i had actually like took the effort to learn myself after you know high school spanish and french and german and all that which by the way i was awful at i hated german i hated german so much because I, I just didn't understand anything at all what they were throwing at me and i, just, I didn't care at all um looking back I'm, i was just a fucking idiot um but Latin was the first one I learned, and then I sort of branched out to other languages that suited my interests. And what I mean by that is that uh, languages that were a part of cultures that I was interested in. So um, like Old English and the Anglo-Saxons, and then move on to Gothic and the Visigoths, um, Old Persian and Cyrus the Great, you know, uh, Ancient Greek and Herodotus and Homer um, and all of that. So, and the languages that I've learned are more or less reflections of my interests in history. Yeah, I'm very fascinated with history too. Like I said, I'm I'm a double major, political science and philosophy. So history is right in the, in the mix of that. Uh, I'm not history, um, political science and philosophy. Um, and so when you bring up Homer, um, Homer very much influenced like Socrates and things like that. I'm sure you know about that. But when you bring up Homer, that's got to be one of the first storytellers in history. What is the earliest um, written text that you've read? Like from what century? So uh, Homer was certainly one of the earliest storytellers um, and he was the early storyteller of the Western tradition, okay. uh, for sure. But he was far from the first storyteller. Um, and in regards to your question, the earliest um, piece of literature that I had ever read was also the per first piece of literature ever written down. Uh, it's the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, the mm. Epic of Gilgamesh was written around 3500 BC, um, though tablets that survive today 
are usually from around 1800 BC. And it was originally written in a language called Sumerian that was spoken in Iraq. And it's the language that has all those triangles and those clay-shaped tablets that you probably see in the backgrounds of historical videos online. And you don't really know what it says and you don't really care. That's what Sumerian is. (laughs) There are some other languages that are written in cuneiform, which is the writing system, like Akkadian and Hittite and other names that you snooze through in history class. Um, but this, um, but the Epic of Gilgamesh was one of the first ones, um, was one of the first actual pieces of literature that was written down. Um, and that was one of the first, uh, one of the early stories that I had ever read. Um, Remind me of the Epic of Gilgamesh because I have heard of Sumerian, I'm sure in philosophy, and I've heard of that story, but I can't remember what it was about. So the Epic of Gilgamesh is uh, the story of a great king of Uruk, which Uruk is a, a kingdom in Mesopotamia. So it's like in between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers of Iraq. Um, and he was two thirds God, one third man. Don't know how that works. Cause you know, how can you be like one third of anything? Um, but basically he was that he had that black air force energy. He was a fucking violent brute. He stole away the wives of husbands on their wedding day and, fuck them um and so the people of uruk were like okay well we're gonna go and call upon the goddess who made gilgamesh and tell him tell her to fucking stop and so the goddess was like okay well i'm gonna go and make basically a copy of him called enkidu and i'm gonna go and send him out in the fucking woods and have him be like a fucking gremlin and so he was like a little gremlin and the people found out about Enkidu, and so they basically sent this prostitute to the woods with Enkidu, and then she had sex with him for like seven days straight. Um, and this caused him to not be a fucking brute anymore, and so he returns. Well, he went to Uruk, and then he um, had a big fight with Gilgamesh, but then Gilgamesh beat the fuck out of him, uh, and then they became best buddies. And that's basically how the story goes. That's a wild first story to ever be written down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's something. <laughs> and and you would think that, like, the, these stories, these early stories that are finally written down, they transformed the way the societies worked and how human society has evolved since then, you know? Like, storytelling, I feel like – I've talked about this a couple times with people, but I feel like storytelling and the ability to tell stories and the ability to write down history specifically – is the most important fact of being a human. I mean, there's a lot of other things, but that was really what distinguishes us from them is understanding there is a past and there is a future. Um, Them being like animals, plants, things like that. But, you know, it seems as though there are some stories that are so influential that they will never be, unless there is a catastrophic event that wipes out all modern humans, they will never be out of our, out of our, um, society entirely. Like I would think of the Bible, Shakespeare, um, Socrates and, and Plato, what are some texts that you've read that you think have influenced modern humans that people might not even know about? So the Epic of Gilgamesh is a really good example because uh, one of the passages of the Epic of Gilgamesh describes the great flood mm. of Noah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically the story goes is that uh, a goddess told this guy that he was going to go and flood the entire earth and he was going to go and build a boat and so that way he would survive. Um, and it has some parallels between the flood story that's found in uh, biblical text. Now, I'm not trying to say that um, the 
Israelites copied off of the Epic of Gilgamesh or anything like that. But I do think that they might have had some influence from a common source um, that was found in various uh, Near Eastern mythology. Um, so it, it's certainly influential in the sense that um, its influence parallels other ancient texts um, in that regard. Do you think that there was a Great Flood? I I can't say. I, I, I'm not a geologist. I'm, I'm merely uh, someone who studies uh, ancient literature. It would be very strange if um, there was a Great Flood. I, I, I believe this was just a uh, just a part of mythology it's crazy though because i feel like there's a lot of other parallels between um modern stories that i guess they wouldn't be necessarily modern but stories that the modern people um listen to like the bible or the quran or um can't remember the one that's uh the african religion but i would feel like there's a lot of parallels between ancient stories and um and like the Bible and the Quran and things, especially when you talk about, I mean, you said the one was bullshit was the uh, uh, e- Egyptian God and, or, or mythology and, um, and the Bible. But you know, how much has like Greek mythology and polytheism influenced monotheism and the storytelling of the modern uh, religious people? There is a, certainly a lot of, influence especially when it comes to greco-roman religion uh especially on christianity so uh, a really good example that i can think of right now is in medieval arts um so you ever heard of ancient aliens yes i have so yeah so in one of the episodes they were like oh my gosh you see it in all these paintings you see like these flying ufos and it's like existence that aliens once roamed the earth in the past um but if you actually know what you're talking about and you don't look like you haven't had a shower in months (laughs) um you can actually draw parallels between the UFOs and images of the sun and moon as is seen in uh, various Greco-Roman arts. Um, this is a wholesale borrowing from that religion. The idea of personifying uh, the moon and the sun as basically people driving little spherical planes um, is a direct borrowing from that uh, polytheistic religion in uh, Renaissance art. So it, it's far from an indicator that it was ancient aliens or anything like that. You know, so go back to what we said about um, modern English. I didn't catch when you said that, when does modern English become readable or when does it become modern English and not a different language entirely? Well, you know, it depends. I, I, I can't really pin down an exact year for you because it depends on how well you can like listen to things. Um, you know, and there's also things like, um, like regional spellings that are more similar to our modern spellings than other regional spellings, which contain like more archaic rules and forms and such um, that, that can throw us off a little bit. And there's also just regional dialects that existed back then, which are much more um, understandable to us Mm -hmm. uh, than other dialects. But the general, the, the general cutoff point is around like the 17th century around that point at that point you're gonna have to go and like you're gonna have to like say what a whole bunch of times and yeah so beyond that so that's like shakespeare king james that sort of thing that's like pretty much the edge that you can go 
Yeah. When does the modern alphabet become prevalent? So that's a much longer story. So in order to go and explain the uh, existence and the origin of the alphabet, we're going to have to go back some two to 3,000 years. Um, so with that, we have to go and talk a little about Egyptian hieroglyphs. Now, despite what a lot of people initially think about hieroglyphs, it's really not that hard to read because it's phonetic. Um, there are signs which indicate individual sounds, um, sometimes signs which indicate multiple sounds. Um, for instance, the uh, there's a sign that looks like a potato that is making the, that makes the r sound, and there's like a sign for like a folded piece of cloth that makes a s sound. Um, but of course, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. There's some things called logographs where uh, one sign represents an entire word, and you have to like kind of like memorize it, like Chinese characters. Um, and there were some miners around, uh, I would say around like 1600 BC in Sinai. So it's like in Northern Egypt, they were like, okay, fuck this. I'm not going to go and learn all this bullshit because that's expensive and it takes years. So what we're going to do is we're going to go and take this system, uh, take the, the signs that represent individual sounds because that's a good idea. And we're going to use that and only that. And the, sign, and the signs, the physical shape of the signs became simpler over time. And now we have something called the Phoenician alphabet. This was a pretty big deal because it was the first fully alphabetic system. And it caught on. It went as far east as uh, India, where it evolved into the uh, Devanagari strips and the Indian strips that we see there today. Uh, and it went as far west as Italy. Um, and eventually it went north into Greece. And the Greeks looked at this system and they looked at it and they said, okay, this is pretty cool. It's really nice, but we already have a writing system. It's called Linear B. Probably don't know much about Linear B because no one gives a fuck about it. <laughs> um, it's basically just a bunch of squiggles where one sign represents an entire syllable. Some pretty innovative stuff. But problem with that is that you can't, individual signs can be a bit hard to interpret. So for instance, um, the sign, the, the word for horse, as you would write it in this linear B script is the sign for E and the sign for guo. All right. So did they pronounce it as equal? No, they did not. They pronounced it as hikwus. Completely different pronunciation. You just kind of have to know. And so they were like, okay, we'll, we'll try and use this Phoenician alphabet, but we're going to go and take some of these signs that we don't need because they represent sounds that we don't have in our language and use them to write down vowels. What the fuck does that mean? Well, it turns out the Phoenician alphabet didn't write down vowels. It only wrote down consonants. Um, now, that was fine and dandy for Phoenician, the language, but for the Greeks, it was like, no, 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 we're going to have to go and, and get those vowels in. And so they innovated and they came up with the first alphabetic system that had vowels wonderful stuff and that greek alphabet you know it spread around into the various colonies that uh greek hat greece had at the time um which at this point we're entering into like the first millennium bc early uh late um sorry late fuck <laughs> early first millennium bc um and we're seeing it travel out uh west into Italy, and that has evolved into the Etruscan alphabet at that point, which was used to write down Etruscan, which was a language that was spoken in Italy, and it died out around 200, around 2 AD, and no one cares about it. Um, but 
the Etruscan the Etruscan alphabet got pretty popular in Italy. It traveled uh, north into you know Central Europe, and you know some um, Germanic barbarians picked it up, and we're going to say that they invented runes because that's what they did. Um, but they also uh, traveled a bit southern into, I would say, central Italy, and there were some people there called the Romans, and they needed a writing system, so they just used that, and that pretty much became the Latin alphabet that we see today. The rest is history. Wow, that's crazy. That's, that's, that is a very long story, but it makes sense because it is a complex system if you really think about it. Like The, the fact that but I mean, it's not complex because two-year-olds, or not two-year-olds, second graders learn it and they can fluently talk about it. But it's complex as in, in the sense that you have a system almost like math where you it's set up and that's what you're going to use unless you learn a different language. If you're speaking English, you use those 26, I think, letters and that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's not something that you can just come up with overnight. Um, so writing has a pattern in the way that it's... Um, in the way that it's developed. So people often say that um, writing started in Mesopotamia with those triangles that no one cares about. And that's technically true, but not all writing evolved from that. There were some civilizations that um, developed writing independently. Um, and the big five are Mesopotamia, Egypt, China, India, and Mexico. Um, and so... Uh, and, and they all start pretty much the same. They evolve from like these pictures and, you know, everyone can sort of get them because they're pictures. They don't really represent language at that point. But once you start to encode language into these pictures, then you start to get like actual writing. And then you're going to have some people that are like, okay, well, that this is a bit tricky because there's like thousands of signs that we have to remember. So how about we just go and have some of these signs represent like phonetic stuff, like actual sounds themselves. And, those can either evolve into syllabaries like with cuneiform or with, you know, Nahuatl writing, which is found in in Mexico, or you can evolve it into individual consonants, which is what the Egyptians did. Mm. Um, And so it's always sort of followed that pattern of, you know, really complex thousands of signs simplifying over time and into the modern alphabets that we have today. It's definitely not something that we um, came up instantly and to be honest you wouldn't really think of language as being like individual sounds because like okay so like imagine that you're just like some guy in iraq between the tigris and euphrates rivers and you're coming up with language well you're not going to go and say okay well these individual words are made up of sounds no you're not going to do that you're not a fucking asshole you're going to go and say okay well this sign represents water this sign represents tree this sign represents the afternoon and you just keep on doing that until you have all the words in your language and written down. And that's what you do because that's intuitive. You would think of writing as something like that. Uh, The idea of, of signs representing individual sounds is, is such a foreign concept um, to, I would imagine the the people who lived in those pre-literate societies. Yeah. And, you know, something that fascinates me is that, you know, ancient humans were able to develop a system where they can communicate with each other. When do we think the first language became prevalent in human humanity or in human society? When, what, when, what millennia, what century do we think that language began to evolve? So language is not something that humans 
are taught. It's an inherent part of our genetic code to learn language. It's a, it's a trait that we as Homo sapiens evolved to have. Um, and the reason for why, I don't really know because I'm not that type of linguist. But um, I will say that it was a, an extremely gradual process that took place over multiple thousands of years. Um, and so trying to pin down the first language Although it's a, a trend that a lot of linguists try to do, it's it, it, we're still very unsure about a lot of things. Um, some people say that it was 60,000 years ago. Others say that it was 100,000 years ago. So it's a difference of around 40,000 years, quite large. Um, but some things that we do know about the first language was that it started in Africa. It started before humans started to migrate out of Africa and into all the little nooks and crannies and assholes of the world. Because, well, obviously, every person can speak a language. So it's not as though you know there were some people who just didn't evolve that language gene and just fucked off somewhere. Because if they did, we would have certainly found them. Um, but no, every person is able to speak a language. Everyone has that language gene. Everyone must have evolved that while we were still, you know, in Africa. Um, so, and, and more so about the first language, we will probably have no idea what it was like. Um, the vast diversity of human language um, is vast. <laughs> and, and, and so to try and like pin down any specific things about it is just going to bring about a whole bunch of uh, conflicting opinions and arguments and debates online and just really unnecessarily long common threads. And yeah, so it, it, in my opinion, it's a false hope. It's, it's a wild goose chase. Yeah. And, and language is so fascinating too, because it's like, it almost... 100% certain that future civilizations will be speaking something entirely different than what we speak currently. Oh yeah. Um, language yeah, evolves even if even if you go back like the like when the United States became a country in, in 1776 if you went back and spoke to George Washington the spoken languages that we speak and they speak are so different. Um, some would say ours is more dumbed down. I would say it's just more if you if you write still it's still as complex and everything you know i always hear that english is the, is, is the hardest language modern language to learn i, I think russian's up there too but mm -hmm. you know i think we'd be able to understand them and have an articulate conversation but it would be so different that it's almost a different language entirely uh, well no not really you know we're actually able to reconstruct what the founding fathers sounded like and it's not too crazy. I mean, uh, there's a really good video by um, a YouTuber called AB Alpha Beta that's actually managed to reconstruct um, the first part of the Declaration of Independence in the accent that would have been used at that time. And yeah, it's kind of funny sounding. Some people have said that it sounds like Scottish English, but um, but for the most part, you can have very much so have a, a conversation between them. Yeah, Scottish English. That's funny. Um, it, you know. As a linguist, when you go back and you and you're reading history through the lens of a specific ancient language, how much how much does that affect how you listen to the story versus being having it translated to you? How you guys can't see this, but he's just staring at me right up close to the camera. How much does 
how much does reading an actual ancient language of a story change the way you view the story versus being having it translated to you? Um, translators can. Um, it all depends on the philosophy of the translator. You know, there are some translations of the Odyssey, for instance, that are much more faithful to the original text, and those there are some that are more liberal in their translation. I enjoy both. It it all has to do with you know an understanding of the culture and of the society and uh, the time that it was written in, and how that can affect the way that more liberal translations can uh, accentuate or diminish certain parts of the story. But in regards to the comparison of the original text, obviously the original text wins every single time um, because it's sort of like that set in stone. This is the actual story right here. And every other translation is basically just a a derivation of it. There's going to be some difference, even if it's on a microscopic level. Um, So yeah, there's always going to be a difference between a translation and the original text, but in regards to what I've read, um, I don't know ancient Greek. <laughs> uh, I, but I have read uh, Beowulf in the original Old English, and it's certainly um, a more—it's certainly a more poetic style of language. Um, you know, the more um, contemporary Old English of, say, Alphic of Ensheim is very much so simple. Uh, in, in comparison to the language of Beowulf, as I said before, it's more poetic. It, it uses a lot more uh, metaphorical language. Uh, oceans are called whale roads, and you know rivers are called swan roads, and you know um, swords are sweaty instead of being bloody. You know, there's a lot more metaphor going on. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I can certainly um, parallel it to more. Um, abstract forms of poetry in that regard. Um, and oftentimes these nuances are um, just translated over for the sake of clarity. People don't translate Swan Road and Whale Road unless they want to be an asshole that is translated as ocean or river because, you know, no one's going to know what the fuck that means. Um, because again, that that metaphor, those metaphorical styles are just not used today. They're primarily a feature of Anglo-Saxon poetry. So, um, but at the end of the day, it all has to do with the philosophy of the translator in regards to how they approach the original text. All right. After a quick digression, um, we had to come back, but you guys won't know this because you're just listening. But I just wanted to ask you right after that, you know, I asked you earlier, how many languages do you speak? How many languages can you read? An excellent question. So um, I'm familiar with a wide variety of scripts. I know multiple forms of cuneiform, runes. I'm familiar with the Greek alphabets. I know the Arabic alphabets. I'm familiar with um, various stages of Chinese characters. Um, basically, everything that I need in order to understand the languages that I'm studying. Um, and, you know, I can pick it up pretty easily depending on the difficulty. Um, so, 
about as many as I need. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly pretty fascinating because it's had to have changed the way you think when you speak, right? It had to have changed the words you use. I mean, obviously we all speak English, but you know, just knowing ancient languages or, or at least being able to phonetically uh, read them and, and even pronounce them. It's how do it change the way you can speak other languages, modern languages when you read them, the way you can pronounce specific words in other languages. I know I've heard you say um, when you're doing like the modern English, you have like this almost dialect that you can do with your voice or, or accent that you can do with your voice that I won't be able to do if you just told me to read something, you know? And so it's mm-hmm. how to have changed the way you think and the way you speak how much do you think reading ancient languages has changed the way you, you think, speak, read, everything like that? You've, you've certainly uh, described it in a, a lot of detail, but I'm, I'm going to have to break the unfortunate news to you. Not that much. Um, I, I, I would say that I still speak the same type of English and the same style of English as it did even before I started studying ancient languages. And I, I think that's just a perspective uh, no offense at all to you, of course, but I think this is just the perspective of someone who doesn't study ancient languages. It's like, oh my gosh, they're they're so smart. They they must yeah. have like a wide wide vocabulary. No, that's it, not really how it works. Um, you know, we speak our languages pretty much the same as everyone else does. Um, it's just that we also happen to know other stuff, um, but it, it doesn't really affect. Um, the way that we speak English as much as other people think it does. But yeah, it's very unfortunate that I have to go and break this uh, very bad news to you. (laughs) No, no, it's, I mean, I, I totally understand where you're coming from and, and, you know, reading ancient languages, Obviously, you can't use those words in everyday in everyday conversations, anyways, because nobody would understand what you're saying. No, no, not really, unfortunately. But it it, it does come in handy. Um, so I was in uh, the DMs of this one girl, mm. and um, she was like, "Oh my gosh, I, I like that you can like speak ancient Greek. It's like really cool and stuff." And I was like, "Okay, cool. Let me just go and be back. I'll be back in like five minutes." And so. I basically translated a sentence into ancient Greek and I sent it to her and she said, Oh my gosh, that's so cool. What does it say? And I said, let me, let me lick your titties, bitch. And uh, let's just say that I was very successful. So, you know, I actually can use it in modern connotations. No. Yeah. It, it, it gets me good. And when you said that you started um, this to get the hose, has it brought you hose? It don't no, no it, <laughs> it has gotten me hose. My oh my gosh, no, it's got me a whole lot of like weird people in my DMs too. Okay, so I'm not supposed to like reveal this to anyone, but this, this is our secret to keeping, as well as the other people that are listening to this podcast. But basically, I was hit up. I was hit up by this one girl um, who wanted me to go and translate something for her. And I was like, okay, sure, fine. I'll go and post it. But it was like this like half torn off piece of cardboard that had like f- like five letters written and there was like some other stuff that was like torn off as well, so I couldn't read it. And I was like, okay, where did you get this from? And she basically went on this really huge story and I don't remember all of it, but basically the story was, so I'm a schizophrenic and I smoke a lot of weed and I basically was stamping things for this bottle factory company and it just appeared in midair out of nowhere. And I was like, okay, um, 
all right. And it, it, and basically, she just went on this like huge tangent about how she needs to go and solve this in order to, to unlock the, the mysteries of the universe. And I was like, you know what? Good for you. Honestly, I, I support it. We, we stand. <laughs> um, and yeah. And so, oh my gosh, it got even weirder the next day because she said that, oh my gosh, I know where this piece of cardboard came from. And she basically sent me like this picture of her room which had nothing in it um it was this black and white photo of like this window um and she said that it looked just like the piece of cardboard and i'm like i have no idea what the fuck you're talking about um and, and so yeah no i i i think this is more just a consequence of, of being tiktok famous you attract a lot of weirdos yeah um, but yeah, no, I, I get lots of, of hoes in my DMs. You know, I, I get people who uh, want my children and people who say that they've made like memes about me. And I was like, okay, sure. That's, that's kind of funny. Um, but yeah. Um, you got banned. I, I, oh, oh yeah. No, I got banned twice. Why? Yeah. Why? So I think the first reason... Actually, I, I know the first reason was because of the fact that um, I used my account to uh, mass report furries. Um, I basically, I, I, um, I, I reported them for uh, endangerments and I, with the added note of these people are a threat to our society. And then five days later, I got banned. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to go and do that again. So I started this new account and I got like half a million followers. And then I got banned again because I don't know why. But now I'm back on the grind. I have like around a fifth of what I had, which is pretty damn good uh, because I've only been at it for a week. So I've got like, I just hit like 100,000 followers like yesterday. Um, and... Yeah, so I'm, I'm just I'm just back on the grind. Nothing's ever gonna stop me. Nothing's gonna keep me down. Yada yada yada. That's so hilarious that you used your. I don't. How many followers did you have on that first account? I think the peak was around 175,000. So you had yeah. 175,000 followers, and you were reporting furries. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh man, why do you think you got banned that second time? Is there any reason? So okay, so TikTok doesn't tell you. Um, so they they tell you if they like take down individual videos, they mm -hmm. can like decide it under like bullying or harassment or yeah. you know, you're doing drugs or child endangerment. But when you get banned, they don't tell you, which is really weird because you then have to go and make an appeal to want to get your account back, and it's hard to do because you don't know why you got banned. Yeah. Um, you can make a guess every now and then, but. Yeah, you're kind of so you're just sort of left in the dark for the most part. As for why, well, probably never know. It's so weird because it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. Like you're not endangering children. I don't think so. Like I don't, I don't understand. No, no, I'm, I'm not. But I, I guess some people think of my videos as being like bullying or harassment because that's what the majority of uh, my, you know of my reports have been about and i can see why they think that you know i i've once referred to italians as not being people and i made fun of the greeks uh you know it, it's I, I can definitely see it yeah um 
but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And you said, so, you know, you said you, you used it to get the hose, but how have you changed your mind? Are you going to do something else with it? Are you going to teach? Maybe are you going to go back and get a degree in it? What are you going to do with being? Oh yeah, no, definitely. Obviously my, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have done it to get the hose if I didn't have like uh, an already established interest in it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 it was always having to do with like a love of history, but you know, I didn't want to be like one of those like history bros, you know, the type I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to be like those type of people. So I thought, you know, well, how can I go and appreciate history in a way that isn't cringe? And so I thought to myself, okay, we'll just learn ancient languages. And that's what I've been doing. And I've been loving it ever since. So yeah, do you want to go back and get a degree in it, get a PhD in it, and then teach or something? What do you want to do? Oh well, yeah, that's a different. That's a difficult question. You know, with things like the internet and readily available resources, the advent of college is just yeah something that's less and less desirable, especially as it becomes more and more expensive. Um, and I don't really need a PhD in order to do the things that I want to do. Mm. You know, because being TikTok famous gets you opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I was flown out to New York City to cover one of the biggest conventions, one of the biggest anime conventions in the world. Um, and that was, I had a wonderful time. And it was all because of the fact that I was TikTok famous and I got to meet up with like a whole bunch of creators. Um, I had a really funny story about me being drunk in Times Square and finding myself in a small jazz club and throwing up on the pianist. It was a wonderful time. I absolutely love New York. Why don't you tell that story? Oh, tell the story. Okay. Tell the story. So the thing about New York, I don't know if you've ever been, have you been? I have never been. It's really, really easy to find drugs in New York. And I'm when from, I say like, I'm from Las Vegas, so I can I can kind of understand where that's coming. Really? From. Okay. So yes. no, okay. So here's the thing. I thought that getting drugs was really hard in Las Vegas because isn't it like super illegal? Uh, marijuana is not. Uh, I mean that's not a really hard drug. But you, dude, I'm talking like I worked at a law firm this summer, and right outside is just people shooting up, doing and 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 I've always heard stories about if you have if you have a little bit of money or clout, like hard drugs like hard like pills or or um cocaine th those are not hard to find i've always i've always heard those stories mm -hmm. so i mean it's all about who you know if like you know and and so like when festivals come here there's always people doing like ecstasy and things like and lsd and things like that and so it's not i don't know it's i'm sure it's super illegal like it's not you can't just fucking just go do cocaine on the street on a street and like, <laughs> hey you want some yeah. but but it's, I, I think if you have influence and you have money and you want it, like, I'm sure you can find it, you know? Yeah. Well, finding drugs in New York is stupid easy. And when I say stupid easy, I mean, I was in the elevator of the hotel that I was staying at. It was the Millennium, the Millennium of Times Square, New York. It's one of the most expensive hotels yeah. in the entire city. Yeah. Like a thousand dollars a night. Um, I, of course, got it for free because I have clout. You know how it is. So um, I was in the elevator and this guy, he just went in the elevator. And as we were going down the lobby, he said, hey, do you want some weed? And I'm like, hell yeah, I do. And he says, okay, give me 40 bucks. I was like, okay, I'll give you $40. And he hands me two blunts. And so 
I finished both of them and now I'm high in Times Square and I'm freaking out over everything. So, you know, there's like street musicians and such, mm-hmm. they play with the saxophone and they bang on drums. I was having a great time um, just listening to all the sights and sounds. And I, <laughs> this one time I was, um, I, I, I found like, okay, so, you know, like that, it's hard to describe do you know like the type of like Instagram picture background where it's like this white wall with like fake vines hanging down on it? Yes. Yes. There was one of those installed on Times Square and I was right next to it. I just happened to be next to it. And this girl with like another guy holding a camera came by and I could tell they were looking at me with contempt. They thought it was lower scum, but you know what? At that time I had like half a million followers. They, they were, they were little fish compared to me. And I was like, and I said to them, uh, who are you? Okay, then bye. And I just left. <laughs> and so I realized maybe like 10 minutes after that, that I was not at all functional. And so I hit up my boy, Bill. Now, Bill is a content creator on TikTok as well. He's like a philosopher uh, guy. He talks about philosophy stuff. Um, we were mutuals after I made fun of him on one of my videos. I, I, I have that tendency. Mm. So um, I hit him up and I was like, hey, Bill, I just want to let you know I'm high in Times Square. I'm not functional. And he was like, oh my God, you're in fucking Times Square? Because he didn't know. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. And I was like, okay, wait right there. Actually, no, meet me at Small's Jazz Club. And I was like, okay, Small's Jazz Club. I don't know where that is. So I go and like look it up on Google Maps and I find it. It must have taken me like, okay. So it felt like three hours but in reality it might have taken me like 20 minutes um to get to small's jazz club and it was like a real like emphasis on small because it was like this fucking tiny hole in the wall uh that was like on the street corner bouncer was there he also looked at me like i was a fucking moron but bill and one of his buds who i also knew who i was also friends with he was like a crypto guy on tiktok as well uh, we met up and he was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I didn't know you were in Times Square. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Is this the place? And he's like, yeah, it's the place. And so he walks up to the bouncer and he says, we're going to get the benches reserved for Bill. And he's like, okay, oh yes, Mr. Petit, the third, I, we've been expecting you. And I was like, oh shit, here we go. I'm living the bougie lifestyle. So we, we walked down like 20 flights of stairs, like it was a hella long trip. We we're deep in the fucking asshole of Manhattan. And we run into the like we enter into this really small rectangular room, right? So you know how you know how rectangles are, you know, two short sides, two long sides. Well, so we entered onto like a short side of the room, right? We were on like the short side, and to the right of us was a bar. To the left of us were some benches that were separated by a rope, right? They were cut off from everything else. In the middle were like twenty-four seats, six by four. But on the other side of the room, on the other sort side of the room, was were instruments. Grand piano, double bass, tenor saxophone, electric guitar, everything that you could possibly dream of. Fucking glockenspiel, all sorts of stuff. So we go over to the reserved parts of the room, which were the benches. And we're sitting like right behind the piano. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is such a great experience. I'm having so much fun. And then the bartender comes up and she asks, okay, what do you guys want? And so they all go and order their stuff. But then Bill says, 
I'll be having two martinis. Sorry, not two martinis. Two martinis, one for the kid. And I was like, oh, fuck. They don't ID in this place. So I got myself a green martini. And um, all the while, I'm recording everything. I have, like, video of, like, all of this stuff. It's great. Uh, is there a way that I can, like, like send you, like, photos of this? Oh, my gosh. It'd be so cool if we could. Bro, that would be so um, um, Maybe chat. chat. I don't know, though. Oh, man. That's crazy. But basically, um, I was just having a great time. And I made this, like, this video. Uh, why do I have my hand up? I don't know. I, <laughs> I can't say it. It's fine. Um, so, um, I had this... Um, this green martini and I was just living the bougie lifestyle pretty much. Oh gosh. The taste was awful by the way. Every time I think about it, it just sends shivers down my spine, but I must've drunk like half of that green martini when some people were walking up onto the stage and putting their instruments on, right? They had like the, this fucking guitar guy had like his sling around it and shit. And I, and Bill like leaned over me to me and said, you ever heard of live jazz before? And me in my high, not quite drunk yet state said, uh uh-uh. uh. And he said, okay, well, you're about to find out. And I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, live jazz, it's nice. It soothes the soul, you know, it's funky. It's not that great. And then they started. And that's when I realized just how zooted off my mind I was off of weed and alcohol because these motherfuckers started playing. And they just started like tugging at the heartstrings and like my soul into my very being. They were like fingering my my prostate and stuff. <laughs> um, it was it was great a full a full body massage in the metaphorical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just having a wonderful time until I started to not have such a wonderful time because after around like two songs were done. Um, and when I say two songs, I mean like both of these songs were like 10 minutes long. Yeah. So they were jazz. And so after like two songs, I was like, kind of like, oh, I was like this, you know, I just had like my knees like this. And at that point, my conscience told me, okay, Aram, I don't know what's going to happen within the next five minutes, but at the end of those five minutes, you're going to throw up. And I was like, all right. I think I can. I, I, I think I can adapt to that. And so I, I go over to my um, another friend of mine. I think his name is Joey. And I said, Joey, I need to throw up. And he was like, Okay, not right now. I'm currently vibing. And I said, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. My apologies. And then I proceeded to throw up on the pianist. Um. <laughs> It just kind of like ruptured. It was like Mount Vesuvius. It just kind of went all over the place. Thank God it didn't hit any of my friends, which you know might have been might have made the night so much worse. But as soon as that happened, Bill got up, rushed me over to the bathroom. Must have been there for like maybe like five minutes, but it felt like thirty. Um, and then we had to leave because we got kicked out. Because you threw now, up on the pianist. We, what? Because you threw up on the pianist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, a <laughs> pianist, surprisingly understanding. Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, no, happens all the time. I was like, God bless your soul, you know. <laughs> so now we're out about in the night streets of Manhattan, and I need to get to my hotel room, and which really sucks because I'm vomiting on every other trash can. 
And every time I try to like, like, like crouch down to try and get like some rest, um, Bill's like, okay, you got to get up because you're literally like three feet away from a cop. I was like, you got it. So we must have walked maybe like five to six blocks north into Times Square and we got to my hotel. You know, we're all in the hotel and he took my shirt off. It was just completely soaked in vomit. It was just the worst experience. Um, and you know what? I had a great time. That was, that was probably the most fun I've had in New York ever. Where are you from? I'm from uh, San Diego, California, but I live in Indiana. Oh, you live in Indiana. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, dude, stories like that. It's not about the actual experience. It's about the ability to have a story like that afterwards, right? Like you have, oh, that yeah. no, it's like it's, it's you like, experience yeah, oh, yeah. that. You're going to remember this one. Trust me. You're going to tell this to all the people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so about that. growing up in Las Vegas, I, um, I don't know if you've ever like, I don't know what you guys did for like homecoming and prom, but we would always get a party bus and go to the strip. Right. That's, that's what we did. We either the go see strip. it. Yeah. It's like the, the Vegas skyline, like all the hotels and everything. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's just called the strip. That's what it's called. Um, uh, and so we would always go down there and we'd go to maybe a show like Penn and Teller or something or the blue man group. Um, but this one time, right. Mm. Um, I think it's my junior year. We go to this hypnotic show. Okay. We oh, went to this okay. Show. So this, you know, little digression. We went there twice in my senior year. I actually got hypnotized, but the, my junior year we go. Right. And we're so there. Like, is it bullshit or is it like a real thing? I don't know. I was drunk off my ass. I could have just been, but I don't remember <laughs> it. Like I was doing it. Like everyone was telling me I was doing everything. And so I think it was probably easier cause I was drunk, you know? Uh, but, but like, it's probably a little bit of bullshit. I don't know. I, I was drunk, so I was probably just playing along, or I don't know. Maybe I was hypnotized, but I can't remember because I was, like I said, hammered. But back to junior year, we go, and um, we're all sitting in these rows, and it's like a bunch of high schoolers, right? And this girl, my friend's date, um, she is she turns and throws up on like these, these two girls who are sitting next to her and I'm at the exact same time. I'm like, I got to go piss. I'm drunk. And, and then I get up and start walking and she's like running past me and throws up on me and the floor. And then she runs and and she throws and, and then I go to the bathroom. I'm like, what the fuck dude and i'm in there and her date's in there trying to get the throw up off his jacket i'm like i have it on my shoes and my arm and i'm like but i'm drunk as shit i'm like what just happened and we all got kicked out and everything but just i have so many experiences of people and even myself like one of those times i threw up but you couldn't throw up in the party bat uh in the party bus so i threw up in my backpack it's like i have so many experiences where it's like where it's like you or one of your friends just fucking got way too fucking blitzed and you just throw up everywhere, but it's just, it makes the story better because then you have it for the rest of time, you know, and it happens to everybody. It's not like, it's not like if you drink, it's not like you've never had an, a time where you've thrown up. Everybody mm-hmm. throws up when you drink, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the big problem with me is that I don't know like when enough, when too much is too much. So mm-hmm. I end up drinking like way too much and they end up like super, super drunk. So yeah, I completely understand that. How old are you? 
I'm 19. You're 19? Yeah. So I'm tw- I j- turned 21. I'm about to be 22 in March. But like before I was like, obviously I drank before I was 21. Everybody does. It's not like it's fucking everywhere besides the United States is, is 18. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. kids don't drink, but um, turning 21, dude, like you have, I don't know if you have like a year and a half, two years, but it's going to change everything because it's like now once you start going like to like clubs and bars, I don't know. You probably being as you have you have some you know you have your TikTok famous. You have some clout. You probably get in, but it changes everything because it's like all right, now there's a limit because if I get too fucked here, how far how far am I from where I need to stay? But I'm an adult, so it's a, it's on me. Like I can I can drink as much alcohol as I want here. But it's on me. I can't just throw up wherever I want because I'm not home yet. And it becomes that like, where's the bathroom? How much can I drink? And and you start getting better at gauging it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. I, I, you hear a lot of weird things about Vegas. I can't imagine living in it because, okay, so the general rule, according to people, is that you don't stay longer than six days in Vegas. Longer than that, it's a suicide mission. Um, is that true? If you're in Vegas, like if you're in like downtown the Strip, for sure, because you're just going to be killing your body. You're going to be severely hungover. You're going to be, um, you're going to be losing money because you're probably gambling and stuff like that. Living in Vegas, so it's, it's not like all the time I'm downtown. You know, it's not like I'm always going downtown or like growing up. Like I would go for like homecoming and stuff, but I wouldn't go like every weekend. Yeah, and, you know, and so like. I would even say, like, if you're living here, it's easy to go downtown. No, you're, you're cutting in and out. Hold oh, on. shit. What was it? You were... <laughs> Sorry, did you hear that? Yeah, no, I, I did. So you were talking about um, how you couldn't just throw up any, anywhere. Um, I think that's where you left off. And not everyone, not every place is, like, downtown. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was saying about living in Vegas. Like, if you, if you go downtown every weekend is at living in Vegas. Like, it's fun, but like you could lose. Like, it's just so expensive, you know. Like, to go grab drinks. Like, drinks are so expensive when you go out. And and you know, I don't think a lot of people gamble, but if you do, like, you can lose a lot of money, you know. So I think there's a fair. Like, I live in the suburbs of Las Vegas. Like, I'm, I'm not. Like, I don't need to be downtown. Like, but beyond all popular belief, we don't live, you know, we don't, nobody lives like on this strip unless you're like Mm -hmm. super filthy. Um, which like even like my girlfriend, her, uh, her sister and her sister's husband are, are, are pretty well off and they live in a high rise downtown, but it's still far enough from the strip that you're not like, you could get downtown walking, but you're not like on the strip for like 10, 15, 20 minutes walking. So like they even live, even living downtown, like you're far enough away. But like, yeah, like I feel like living in Las Vegas definitely let me have a lot of opportunities, you know, to party. Um, But I feel like it's not nothing different than living in like Beverly Hills, LA, or um, New York, you know, if you live in a major city like that, like you're like partying is probably second nature. Yeah, definitely. I I can definitely see that. But yeah, man, I I wanted to join back anyways, just because, you know, this is a good way to end it anyways. We've been on here for about, I I think we cut off at like 45 and now we're at like 30 something. So we've been on here for over an hour, probably an hour 20. So this is a good way to end it, bro. I I love talking to you. You're, you're, yeah, definitely. You, uh, 
I commend you because like you're not only 19 and, and you're, and you're doing something that nobody does and you're content creating based on that though. Like you're not just like, you know, it's really easy to become an influencer and do something that everybody's doing, but you're doing something so drastically different that it's going to take you to a bunch of places. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So yeah, thank you, man. Again, um, I'm going to post it. I'm going to edit it and post it and it'll be out, but I'll tag you and everything. But you know, if you ever want to come back on, bro, please just let me know. Yeah, of course. I'll be sure to hit you up, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, stay up. Have a, have a good day, bro. Yeah, you too. Episode 81 with Arnim Sorkong. It's got to be something like that. Dude, he's fascinating. He's hilarious. And, and he's so well-read on ancient languages and linguistic. I have no doubt he's going to do great things in this life. Go follow him on Instagram and TikTok at Arnim Sorkong. Follow me on all my social media at Colin Demands. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, stay demanding. <laughs>